nice to be with you and to share in your service. And we're looking at 2 Timothy and chapter 4. 2 Timothy and chapter 4. Second Timothy and chapter 4. And we're going to read the first eight, eight verses. We'll not be speaking on them all, but we want to read them by way of context to what we are speaking on. So Second Timothy, this is Paul writing. He's in Rome. Paul is in prison. Uh, the time is coming near for his execution. Most commentators agree that Paul was beheaded, uh, the apostle, and he was beheaded in Rome along with many other Christians under the tyranny and the reign of Nero, wicked Nero. And so Paul is writing this uh, little letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, uh, a young man who he has mentored, encouraged, and sought to help. Timothy was a quiet young man. He had been brought up in a good home. His mother, his grandmother, had taught him the scriptures, and at a young age he had come to know the Lord, but throughout his ministry he was a timid and a quiet young man, and Paul always was uh, provoking him and encouraging him to not be fearful and not let people, uh, as we would say, tramp on him. He, he needed, he needed um, provoked. So Paul is writing to young Timothy here, and that's the background to what's occurring. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own uh, lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned on to fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry or fulfill thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Amen, and we know God will bless the public reading of God's inerrant word. Let's unite together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning that we can come to the throne of grace. We want to thank you, Lord, that although none of us probably have Jewish blood, we thank you, Lord, yet redemption has been provided through the Jews, and we thank thee that salvation has come through their Messiah. And this morning we can sing and sing with assurance that we know that we belong to you. And we want to thank you for your great salvation. And we pray today, Lord, for the covering of your precious blood. I give myself completely to you, Lord. I pray that you will cleanse and sanctify my spirit, soul, and body. I pray, Lord, for a hedge to be placed around us and for a consciousness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We invite Holy Spirit to come near and to speak and to work in our midst. And we ask these things giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. On a few occasions when my children were growing up and were quite small in the primary school, there was what was called the sports day. And those who are fathers, mothers are only too familiar, but fathers can sometimes avoid, avoid it. Not that I suggest you should, but um, on a few occasions I attended the sports day. 
and the children were in P1, 2, 3, or whatever it might have been. And of course, it came maybe the egg and the spoon race, or maybe just running. And of course, the children got into line. And whenever I was standing uh, with my wife, or maybe, maybe some other gentleman, whoever it might be, together, my, the children would begin to run. And they would exert all the energy and all the strength that a child would have but then, of course, they would always glance over to see, were you looking at them? And then when they got to the end, whether they had done well or maybe not so well, uh, you naturally went over and said, you did very well. That was good. And they were intending to win, but the winning only meant something as long as mom or dad put their approval on it. Your presence meant as much, if not more, than the actual winning. And I think every parent can identify with that. And so I want to speak uh, this morning about winning the race and about getting the Father's approval. Finishing well is my title because I'm usually asked, so for those who are writing the message, finishing well. It's one thing to start out good. Come to Christ, uh, especially if you're young and a teenager or even smaller, that's fantastic. The younger you are to come to Christ and to follow him, the more likely you are to be preserved from all the sorrows and tears and pain that come in life when you live a selfish life and when you do your own thing and you believe that you're God Almighty and you make all the decisions. Those who have lived such a life Learn only too quickly how devastating life can be when you live for self. But God has called us to live for him. And this morning, those of you who know the Lord, I am glad that you're in the kingdom and that you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But what I want to ask you is, what have you been doing with it? What have you been doing with this salvation? What have you been doing with this conversion? that God gave you. And that's very much the theme of what we're going to look at this morning. You see, although there were many characters in the Bible that had trust in God and some had very clear and unique conversions in the New Testament, not all ended well. Not all ended well. There are many tragedies in the Bible Lives of people just like you and me. We see Saul, the king of Israel, ending up a suicide, although he was anointed of the Spirit when he commenced kingship. We see his successor, Solomon, the richest man, the man who had encounters with God, visions from God, and was granted the greatest gift of wisdom, and yet... He became one of the greatest fools simply by his life, by his behavior, and by his lust for earthly things. We see Gehazi, the one who was going to be God's anointed prophet, who blew it. We see Gideon, who was the great deliverer for God and and defeated the Lord's enemies, became a great judge of Israel, and at the end he went for gold. We see Ananias, the liar, and his wife Sophia, both involved in the strongest evangelical church at the time, in fact the only church at the time, and yet they're smitten dead by the judgment of God for lying. And then Paul, in this very book that we have read, just two verses later, and the verses we have read, he said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He didn't mean that he loved the world as in he became a fornicator and an adulterer and lusted for loads of wealth and stole. No, no, he just loved the tinsel. He just liked the world. And Paul said, he hath forsaken me. And he leaves the pages of Scripture, and we never hear from him 
again. Paul here, in writing to Timothy, first of all alludes to his own death, his own mortality. He says to him in verse 6, he said, For I am now ready to be offered. And he's alluding to the Old Testament where an offering would have been made and the offering would have been poured out on the altar. And he's saying that that's that my life is being poured out now and this is the end. It's the final sacrifice. It's the consummation, the end of this earthly life as I know it. And Paul said, I am now ready to be offered. I'm ready for the day of my death. Can I challenge those who are here today while we anticipate elderly people to die, yet it is a fact that the young may die. Really, the time of your death is unimportant. Your age is really unimportant. Even how you die is really unimportant. It's where you go that matters. Not when you die, not how you die, but where you go when you die. And Paul said, I'm ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Then he says, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, he uses a word that to us simply means we have our own concept of the word departure. But in Paul's mind, that is a Greek word that simply means a boat or a ship that is in harbor. It is docked and held by ropes. And the ropes are holding the ship as it's maybe putting off its cargo or putting a cargo on. And Paul says there comes a point when the sailors get onto the boat and they release the ropes. And then the ship is free. Then the ship can leave and go out into the wide open ocean. The restrictions are gone. And he said, that's what he meant. He said, my departure is at hand. He said, the ropes are going to be cut shortly. The ship is leaving dock shortly. I'm going to escape from the darkness, from the wickedness, from the evil of this world. And I'm going to arrive safely on another shore that's heavenly, that's godly, that's everything God ever showed me in the past and all I ever lived for and all I ever endured on earth was worth it because that departure, I'm going to leave my body. You see, friends, for the Christian, when we die, it is a freedom because the body limits the spirit. The body limits the soul in so many ways. But when the silver cord, which is spoken of in Ecclesiastes, when the silver cord is broken, then there is a freedom from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. And Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand. But then, not only is he contemplating his death, but then he does a short review of all the years that have gone before. He looks back over his life. And this is how he encapsulates his life. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Three points he presents regarding the review of his life. Dear Christian friend, you need to review your life. 
as do I. I used to go to a house meeting every Sunday night when I was a young Christian. And the man who owned that house used to constantly say, you know, he said, in our lives we need to take stock. You know what taking stock is? Once a month or whatever it is in business, you get a look at all the produce and you, you get a note of everything. and How's it going, good or bad? And that's true. You need to take stock of your life. What, what is the past? And where am I going with my life? Are the decisions and desires and ambitions of my life, are they in alignment with God? Or are they my own? Well, Paul does his personal review. And this is what he says, I have fought the good fight. Now that word in the original Greek language where we get the word agonize. It hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy. The Christian life is not for the soft or the faint. It doesn't really require neither much intelligence nor stamina to live for this world. I go over to the Isle of Harris, where my wife's from in the Outer Hebrides, and there's a place called Avonsuya Castle. And when you go to that castle, it's beautifully positioned, looking out to the sea. And there's this drop of, oh, maybe 20 feet, and rocks then, and, and just different rocks, and then a drop. But one of the drops is huge. And I remember going to preach on one occasion past the castle in a little hall. And when I came back, we stopped one Sunday evening and got out for a walk. And I watched the salmon. They were coming in. And I saw the salmon jumping 10, 15 feet in the air. And even when they were defeated and they fell back into the water, they, they just got themselves together again and up they went and they didn't quit until they were where they wanted to be. They were going to reproduce, but, but the fight in the salmon, to go against the stream, to go against everything that was going against them, and they did it because God had made them like that. And when you became a Christian, my dear friend, you're not just an ordinary person anymore. You have God Almighty living inside you. And if you're not going against the stream, it's not because you can't. It's because you have chosen not to. You have chosen to go with the stream because of the bad decisions that you're making in your life. The provision to go for God, after God, is all in what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. He said, I have agonized. The terminology is that of a wrestler, that of a warrior fighting against his opponent, utilizing all his skills to win the victory. It is the picture of an athlete running the race in order to win the prize. That's the word. He said, I have fought like a soldier. I have run like an athlete. Could I ask you this morning as a Christian, could you equate your Christian life to be like an athlete or to be like a warrior? Now you're saying, Alan, but this is, this is Paul. Alan, hold on a moment. You know, this is, we're in a different day. Granted, we're in a different day. And granted, Paul was different because he was a unique, if not the most unique Christian that ever lived. I'll grant you that. He was the worst of murderers and he became a missionary. He was the one who went out to persecute the people of God, and yet he became the greatest preacher 
to the church of God. God told him through prophecy that that he would suffer many things in his ministry, and he himself stated that he was the chief of sinners. Granted, he is a unique man. But there's something odious in the church today, and I mean the church right across the board, and that is we live in the lowlands in the lowlands spiritually. This is not something confined to one group or one denomination. It is right across the board. We live in the lowlands. The day of spiritual giants in the church seems rare. It's, as one preacher said, we live in the day of spiritual pygmies. Pygmies in the pulpit. Pygmies in the prayer meeting. No giants anymore. And there's a desperate need for giants of the faith. People that rise up like Paul, with the same heart as Paul, with the same passion as Paul, through the same spirit that indwelt Paul. He said, I have fought the good fight. Now that word good is very interesting because like most English words, the meaning is lost because it's so vague. But the Greek language brings meaning that English can't capture. And what he's saying is, I have fought the admirable fight. I have fought a beautiful fight. He said, I have fought an inspirational fight. And I have fought a motivational fight. That's what he's saying to Paul or to young Timothy. Timothy, the fight that I fought before you was admirable. It was beautiful. It should have been inspirational to you and others, and it should have motivated you to do what I have done. That's what he's saying to him when he uses the word good. Well, who was it good to? Who was it motivational or admirable to? Well, I suggest to you that it was admirable to God himself as God looked on this man, God admired what grace was accomplishing through a yielded life. I suggest to you that the angels who look into all that happens in the life of Christians, that angels found it amazing to observe this man who went into situations where the odds were so against him on every front, and yet he triumphed over and over and over again. He tapped into a resource that the church today doesn't seem to even know exists. My daughter showed me a big, I'll not name it, a big church here in Northern Ireland. One of the pastors was speaking and he was giving some kind of a daily input to the congregation, sitting in an armchair and speaking to the church. Speaking to a church when, in a day when people are dying by the thousands, going to a Christless hell, when the church is prayerless, powerless and ineffective and unable to deter the swathes and waves of darkness, of abortion and every other issue that is coming over our nation. And there he was ministering to the people about what? Global warming. I said to my daughter, turn it off. Turn it off. That's the world's agenda. Leave that, that's their job. You tell the people about getting right with God. 
Teach the people how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Teach the people how to live holy lives. Forget about your global warming. But I'm the pastor. Pastor of what? Well, Paul said, I have fought a good, a good fight. Good before God, good before angels, and good before men. You mightn't have realized it, especially those who are God-seekers this morning, because I'm old, as my mother used to say, old and ugly enough to know that not all Christians are God-seekers. I know that. And we'll come to that shortly. They're not. Even Paul had to address it himself. You won't all do God's will. You won't. You won't get the crown. You won't get it. Because it's not valuable enough to you. There's other things in your life that are too important. You're not prepared to sacrifice them. This world is too real to you. So the crown will be lost. But there will be those who will get the crown. And that lies in your hands, my friend. The late Leonard Ravenhill used to say, you have the same Bible as John Wesley, George Whitfield, Finney, Tozer, whoever it might be. You have the same Bible. It just happened that they used it better. They just got more serious than you. That's all. You see, friends, when I look back over my life, there were Christians that I met along the journey. And my mind, in my mind, I can see people. Most of them are with the Lord now. But I see certain individuals, and they motivated me. They inspired me. I watched them. I listened to them. I heard their stories. And I had a drawing in my heart. I want to know God like that. I want to follow God like that. I can well remember as a young Christian, I, there's a, a lady called Marie McCarroll from Lurgan. And I remember as a young Christian, I was given a CD of Marie giving her testimony. She'd been in the faith mission and then she went out to Africa as a missionary. I think it was Africa, maybe, maybe uh, Canada. But she went as a missionary and she told the story of course, I was converted in that stage in, in, in an assembly and, you know, following the best I could. And I can remember her telling this story about, about one day she, her shoes, she got a hole in her shoes. And, and, and she got down before the Lord and she said, Lord, I have a hole in my shoes, but you have promised to look after me. I'm in your will. Here I am serving you. Lord, I'm yielded to you. Lord, I need shoes. And she came home that day. And when she arrived home, there was a box. And she opened the box. And when she opened the box, there was a beautiful pair of brown shoes. And I was, could that be? Could that be that, that this, this woman could know God? That, could you know God like that? And, and when she opened the boxes, those who know Marie, she has a great sense of humor, that when she opened the box, she went to put the shoes on and, and there were no laces. And she said, Lord, thank you very much for the shoes, but they're really no use to me. How am I supposed to walk with a pair of shoes and no laces? Very matter of fact. And she said she got a letter from Lurgan. A little lady that she knew in the church said, Marie, when you look in the bottom of this envelope, you'll think it's stupid, but I was walking in the shop the other day and I felt so compelled to buy this and send it to you. If it isn't any use, throw it in the bin. But I'm just telling you what happened to me. And she said, I put my hand into the envelope and I pulled out a lovely pair of brown laces. And I remember hearing that story and I thought, am I even saved? <laughs> of course I was. But I realized there are places you can go with God. You can go with God. 
You can get to know God. That inspired me. I never forgot that. That's over 40 years ago. Never forgot that. And many others down the years, people I heard preaching, people I met in life, and they inspired me. They inspired me. Paul did this. But it's what you do with it, my friend. It's what you do with it. You see, I used to listen to people's stories, and then when I started to speak occasionally in meetings, I used to say, I want to tell you a story, and I'll tell you about this missionary, and tell you about Marie McCarroll, and I'll tell you about this other man that I met, and tell his story. And I was telling, and one day, one day, I said, oh God, I'm spending all my time telling about everybody else's story. What about me having a story? Lord, could I have a story that I could tell of you doing things for me rather than always rehearsing everybody else's stories? My friend, do you not want a story? Do you not want your story between you and God? It might not be like Marie. It might not be in that realm. Or, or, but, but nevertheless, it is you and God. And you know God has come through for you. And you know God is real to you. And you're enjoying. And you see a man's in prayer. Is that not what you would like? I, I trust it is. I trust it is, my friend. Don't settle for religion and just believing doctrines. As important as doctrines are. He said, I have fought the good fight. And then he said, I have finished the course. You see, my dear friends, when he said, I have fought the good fight, he means that I have been in a battle that has led to victory. That's what Paul looks back. He said, I have been in a battle. Every Christian that does the will of God will, no doubt, will look back on their life and say, there has been a great battle, but I have the victory. That's what will happen. God, they'll know God gave them the victory. They'll look back. And that's what he did. But then he also said, I have finished the course. What he's talking about is the race, the athletic races where you run. And he said, I have run and I know that I have a reward coming. You see, where many Christians make a huge blunder through ignorance of the Scripture first because they have such a limited appetite for the Bible, therefore they don't know what God has to say. You see, friends, when you are regenerated, saved by the grace of God, you come into the kingdom of God, you are made righteous before God through salvation. But, but, you are then called to serve. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul was writing, he said to the church, No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He said your conversion is like the foundation of a house. The house can't be built without a foundation. He said you can't live the Christian life without Christ being the foundation. You must come to him, put your trust in him, and that is your foundation. And then Paul says, and be careful how you build thereon. How, what kind of a structure am I putting on this foundation? That's the question. That's the question. He said, I have finished the course. And then he said, I've kept the faith. The truth that has been preserved. He said, I was given something so valuable when I fell off the horse and when I was blinded by Jesus Christ and I heard his voice saying, why are you fighting against me? And I went to a home and Ananias came and the Lord told me then that he was coming. So much happened in a short period of time. It was entirely supernatural as every true conversion is. And Paul said, when he prayed for me, 
a veil, as it were, or, or something attached to my eyes fell off, and I could see, and I was baptized, and I started to eat. And he said, then the next three years in, in the, the desert, in the wilderness, he said, of Arabia, there he said, I met God. There he said, God had dealings with me in those three-year period. And he said, during there, I had revelations from Jesus Christ. There he said, I learned the principles of Christianity. God took all the Old Testament scriptures that I had learned as a Pharisee and had utilized to destroy these Christians. He said, I, I had all that absorbed in me. It was all in me. And then God came and God began to teach me from the word of God in me. And he said, I realized Christ was the Messiah. And he said, he told me what plans he had for my life. And you see, dear friends, he deposited in Paul the truth. He deposited in Paul the gospel. He deposited in Paul the great gem, the great, the great diamond, as it were, of truth and faith and how to live and demonstrate the Christian life. And Paul said, I was given it, I was given it in that conversion and subsequent period. And he said, I'm coming to the end now. And he said, I have kept it. I have kept it. The Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. When God reveals a truth to your heart, obey it and never compromise it for anybody. For anybody. I have had many people have fallen out with me. And people have said things that are untrue about me. And people say to me on occasions, do you not feel offended? Well, it's never nice not to be liked. I'll tell you that. But my dear friends, I really honestly can say it doesn't concern me and it doesn't worry me because many people lack knowledge. We all do. And therefore we say things because we don't understand. We're all like that. But all I need to know in my life is, is what I'm doing, is the truth God has given me, is it from him or is it not? Am I pleasing the master or am I not? That's all I have to find out. Because listen, the church ultimately at the final judgment and Christians, pastors, leaders, preachers are not going to be my judge. It's Jesus Christ who will be my judge. And yours as well. And he knows us in a way that nobody else knows us. And he understands us in a way that nobody else understands us. And where others would be brutal, he's compassionate. Where others don't understand, he understands. Now I want to elaborate just for a few moments on the first verse very quickly. And that is on the first point of the verse where he said, I have fought the good fight. What is Paul practically talking about when he says, looking over years of service as a missionary, what is this man saying, I have fought the good fight? Well, I want to throw, throw or bring before you three, three um truths that are presented in the Word of God and are specifically mentioned that we all contend with. And I want to go through them briefly in an order. The first one is the flesh. The flesh. You see, it says in 1 Peter 3 that our earthly or sinful fleshly nature wars against our soul. Wars. That's a battle. <laughs> One of the greatest shocks I got after I was converted was that my experience of conversion was so heavenly, so powerful, so clear and life-transforming that I kind of thought I had kind of semi-gone to heaven. The biggest shock was that I still would sin in ways that I sinned before I was converted. 
That was a huge shock to me. And I had to learn through puddling along that I didn't need converted again, but that I had this problem called the sin nature or the flesh, the old man existed inside me. And although the Holy Spirit dwelt in my spirit, there was now a conflict going on. Before when I sinned, I didn't feel bad about it because I was just happy nobody found out about my sin. But now when I sinned, I felt everything in my heart yelling how unclean I was and how I had grieved God who had saved me. And that was the evidence that I was a Christian because you may sin as a Christian, but if you are truly regenerated, then the Holy Spirit will let you know that he's hurt. And he will tell you that you have hurt him and you have offended and grieved him by your behavior. And he will direct you to the cross for cleansing so that you confess your sin, that he can cleanse and take away that sin. But the flesh is alluded to in many portions of Scripture, and Paul gives us the most concise and widest uh, dimensions regarding what the flesh is. He knew it all too well himself. You see, my dear friends, where I believe Paul is very important in looking back over the fight is unlike today, Paul did allude to this battle. He did point out that it occurred. But he also pointed out through his experience in the book of Romans chapter 6. Let me read to you what he said. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 7 and 8. Romans chapter 6. Verse 7 and 8, or 6, 7 and 8. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. What is Paul talking about? Well, let me read you one other verse in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 where Paul said, sin shall not have dominion or rule over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. This is what Paul alluded to in those important chapters in Romans. I get very um, troubled when I hear preachers saying, that Paul at the end of his life in Romans 7 was saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I, that I don't want to do, that I do. My dear friend, Paul never ended his life there. Paul was there in his early days, but he discovered by revelation and experience as a Christian that there was a place where sin would not rule over him, where lust would not rule over his life, where lying and cheating and the love of the world and materialism and such things, Paul discovered that there was a place where he would discover through what Christ had done, he said, sin in any form will not have rule over my life. Why? Because I'm not under the law of attempting to keep rules. But he said, I have tapped into a pipe, and it's called the grace of God. And that tap and that pipe has got so large in my life, he said, that it just overwhelms me. I have learned to draw from God. And he said, sin doesn't rule in my life. I don't have a bad temper. I'm not troubled by lust. I'm still tempted. The war's still on. But sin doesn't have dominion. He said, I have discovered that there is victory over sin. That's where Paul was. That's where Paul was. And he said, looking back, I have fought that fight. My dear friends, I know you all dress up well and you're no different to me. But if your heart and your activities in private were brought to the public, you might not even be here this morning. 
That's because the sin nature, you're not addressing it. Is there some kind of magic miracle that you do that happens? Some people have unique experiences with God that brings them great victory. But all I'll tell you this morning is that there's a pipe and it can be as large as you want and it carries the unmerited love, grace, power, dynamite of the Holy Spirit. And if you put yourself in the place to seek God and be under that pipe, you will find that sin will not have dominion over you. See, my dear friends, if I said to you, well, you've got to do your best. You can only do your best. If you're full of lust, you know. I listened to a man recently again. My daughter showed it to me, a pastor, again in a church in Ulster, and he got up. And I happen to have dealt with a number of people in the congregation who have come privately for prayer with deep, deep issues to do with sexuality, to do with a raft of problems. And the pastor got up before them and he said to them, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And he threw his arms up and he said, we're all free. I said, God help us, what's wrong with that man? We're all free. To quote the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, if we're free, why in God's name are we the way we are? You see, my dear friends, this man discovered the empowering of the Holy Ghost. He knew what it was to be being filled constantly with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me quote, and time's against me, but let me quote. I remember in Bible college many years ago, our wonderful principal, the late Dr. Colin Peckham. And he said to us, you know what Christianity is? He said, practically, this is the experience of the average Christian. He said they have defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat and then a wee blip of a victory. That's the average Christian life. But he said whenever you're filled with the Spirit, whenever you're sanctified to the Lord, when the Lord is control of you, when that pipe of grace is flowing into your life, he said then it is victory after victory after victory after victory and an occasional defeat may occur. But it's the complete reverse. Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist, said there is an experience of God that brings you as high above the average Christian as the average Christian is above the world. He was a Baptist, my friends, but he knew that. There is a life of victory for the Christian as long as you stay to the pipe. You can never get to a place where you can't sin. That's not possible. Anybody can feel. Anybody can fall. But Paul said there is a reservoir open and he said sin doesn't have to rule in your life. He said I found that victory. But then the second one was not only the flesh but the world. He said the world. He said my little children these things write I unto you that ye sin not. But then he moved on to the world. And he said to them, You hath God quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. My dear friends, you see that world out there with all its opinions and all its, whether it's global warming or abortion or homosexuality or gay marriage or transgender. My wife told me this morning, she rang, she, she, she said to me when I come downstairs, a, a, a friend she was talking to, she said, in one of the schools in Northern Ireland, one of the schools here, a girl has now come out and she's a fox. And they're setting a, lit a litter tray for her. In school, a litter tray for a child who's a fox. A generation ago, they would have gone to Bluestone for assistance. That's where we are. This world, the Bible says, the spirit that now worketh. 
in the children of disobedience. That world out there is controlled by a spirit, the spirit of the world. It is not neutral. It is very much demonic because the Bible says the devil deceiveth the whole world. This is his domain. This is his workshop. These are his people. And to see him doing such things to the lives of people is so devastating. But Paul said, Demas has forsaken me. He was with me in the battle. He was with me in the prayer meetings. He was with me in the soul winning. He was with me in everything. And Paul says, he has forsaken me, having loved this present evil world. Just the tinsel. Just the tinsel. He lost out. You see, my dear friends, you can lose out so, so easily. Gideon, we mentioned, served the Lord so well, knew the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. And yet at the very end, the people came and they said, we will crown you or crown your sons. And he said, no, no, that's not an honor for me. And he pushed away the crown. But then he said, but I'll have your gold. At the end of the journey, I'll have your gold. And he got his eye on gold. I believe probably most Christians will miss the will of God through their love of gold. They'll miss the, they'll miss the prize. You see, my dear friends, God wants our heart. Chuck Misler, uh, I'm greatly indebted to Chuck Misler. He's dead now. He was a great American Christian and Bible teacher. And for 30 years, he was the head of, he was the CEO of about five companies. He operated at the very top boardrooms and worked with multi-millions all the time. And he became a very wealthy man. Then he made a deal in his later life, and as a result of that deal, it all went pear shape and he lost everything. He said it was one of the greatest things ever happened in his life because although he was a Christian and was committed to Christ all those years in the boardroom, nevertheless, Christ was never truly central. He was never truly in the place he should have been in his life. But he lost everything. And he said the thing that he used to do as a hobby, that was to preach to young people and do it, be a bit, bit of Bible teaching, he said, suddenly I was thrust into full-time Christian work and served the Lord then for over 20 years. Wonderful Bible teacher. But Chuck Misler said, if anybody comes into my home, he said, in the hallway, when you walk into my home, he said, on the left-hand side, there are a number of very important people shaking hands with Chuck Misler because of his inventions, because of his success. And he said, the, the, the pictures are there. And then he said, on the right-hand side, he said, there are also meetings and things to do with God's work and maybe not finance, anything like that, but just different things to do with the 20 years. And he said, when people come in, and look at it, he said, come let me show you the wood, hay, and the stubble. Here's my career. Let me show you the wood, hay, and the stubble. Now, there's nothing wrong, by the way, of having a career. Don't get me wrong. But is that what God wants you to do? That's the point. Am I doing God's will in what I'm doing? That's all that matters. But he wasn't. Wood, hay, and stubble. Ah, but he said, let me show you the gold, silver, and the precious stones. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they were in a church, my friends. And what did they do? Well, they were fond of reputation and fond of money. But they wanted to be seen in the church as Christians. You say, well, what was their crime? They were liars. They were liars. Told a lie and... Yeah. I remember 
pastor on one occasion when I was in Bible college, if I named him, most many would know him. And he came and with tears in his eyes, he told us as a student, his son was not a Christian. Daughter was, but son wasn't. And he said, I often said to my son, would you not consider becoming a Christian? And he said, Dad, in the job that I'm in, he said, most of the guys that come to deal with me, he said, they might have a big Bible in the dash. And he said, they're in the local evangelical church. But he says, they promise they're going to do something, and they never do it. He says, they say, we'll be there, and they're never there. He said, that's, that's just part, part of it. Dad, I, I know you're real, but telling lies. You see, friend, if you can tell lies, I mean, I'm not your judge or jury, but I'll tell you what that tells me. That tells me you know nothing about walking with God if you tell lies if you can freely flip them off, and you've done it so often now that you don't even know you're doing it anymore. You tell untruths to people. Listen, your testimony's down the drain. It's gone. It's gone. Everybody sells their testimony for something. It's valuable to some extent. And people sell it for money. People sell it for telling lies. People sell it for this, that, and the other. You've got to decide how precious is this to me? How important is this? What am I prepared to give up? To let this go. Your behavior will tell people where you stand. Say, well, it couldn't be that serious. Well, ask Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. My dear friends, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. And I've kept the faith. Who did he fight? World, flesh, devil, the old devil. And we all have encountered him. And my time is gone and I'm not going to pursue or proceed anymore because you have listened so well to me this morning. But I would like to say in closing and tell you a little story about pursuing God, about finishing well, and about winning the prize, the crown that's mentioned here that crown. I may have told it before, but it's a true story. A man who had designed a bridge, an architect, this beautiful bridge in America, which was quite large and complicated, he drew it, and he was preparing to build it, and he was in an automobile car accident. He was paralyzed from the waist down, grieved and broken that he couldn't pursue his job. He so wanted to do this job, but couldn't. Someone came to him and said, well, we can build it for you. So he reviewed the plans, checked that they were all above board and everything was as he wished, and he handed the plans to them, and they made off to build the bridge. A few years had passed, and the day came when they said, we have got the bridge completed. Come and see it. They wheeled him out in the wheelchair and he sat at a view where he could see every rope, every piece of concrete, every piece of tower. He could view the whole thing. And for a long time they stood around him and watched him as he run his eye over this bridge back and forth across. And they looked, wondering what he would say. And eventually he lifted his hands up and he said to them, it's just like the plan. It's just like the plan. My dear friend, a day will come for you and I when the great architect of heaven who has and had a plan for our lives we will stand before him. It's called the Bema Seat. And he will roll it out. I wonder on that day when I stand, will he look 
at my life and say, Alan, it's just like the plan. It's what I had planned for you. You have worked out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious words, and we pray that you will speak to our hearts and encourage us, Lord, to give all we've got, to go after God, to live for heaven, and to win the prize. We ask for your help and covering. In Jesus' name, amen.